sermon this morning, maybe. We'll see. So last week we had David Jesus the man, this week Jesus the saviour. So what is a saviour? Well, the dictionary definition is someone who rescues someone from danger or harm. So what does Jesus save us or rescue us from? Well, we are saved from the punishment due because of our sin. Well, that's quite simple, isn't it? And as we've just heard read to us from John's Gospel, one of the most famous verses, if not the most famous verse from the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen to that. And it sums up what our Christian faith is all about. The debt is paid. The job is done. Amen. So our last song this morning. I told you it would be short. (laughs) But no, only kidding, not that short. Uh, Those are simple enough statements, but what do they mean? Well, to understand that, we have to unpack what Jesus said to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John's Gospel. But before we look at that, we have to unpack what credentials Jesus had to even qualify to answer the questions that he asked, that Nicodemus asked. To do that, we have to go right the way back to our call to worship, to Genesis and chapter 12, where it said, where God said to Abraham that he would make him into a great nation and that all people on earth would be blessed through him. The nation was, of course, Israel, and all people would be blessed through Christ, a direct descendant of Abraham. Echoed and affirmed in that first reading from Romans chapter 4, where it also stated that God's promise to Abraham was not based on his obedience, but on a right relationship with God through faith. It's faith rather than obedience that is the key here. The Old Testament is full of prophecies about a Messiah who would come and save God's people, a direct descendant of Abraham. Well, Jesus met the criteria, and people began to talk about him and what he was saying. So Jesus had the right credentials and was saying the most interesting things, enough to arouse the curiosity of a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who came to see what it was all about. Nicodemus, not only a Pharisee, but also a member of the ruling council, otherwise known as the Sanhedrin. Now, the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders whom Jesus and John the Baptist often criticised for being hypocrites. There were several Jewish religious groups at that time, the main ones being the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees separated themselves from anything non-Jewish and carefully followed both the Old Testament laws and the oral traditions handed down through the centuries. The Pharisees came from all classes of people, unlike the Sadducees who descended mainly from priestly nobility. The two groups intensely disliked one another, but they both opposed Jesus. Most Pharisees were intensely jealous of Jesus because he undermined their authority and challenged their views. But Nicodemus was searching. And I think he believed that Jesus had some answers. He was clearly intelligent and well-educated. And as a learned teacher himself, I think he came to be taught. He came to Jesus personally, although presumably he could have sent one of his assistants. 
He came after dark, so maybe he was concerned about what the other Pharisees might have to say about his visit. He wanted to examine Jesus for himself, to separate fact from rumour. Nicodemus recognised that God was with this man. He also would undoubtedly have been familiar with God's promise in Ezekiel, where it states in chapters 36 and verses 25 and 26, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and you will no longer worship idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Jesus revealed to this devout Pharisee that the kingdom would come to the whole world, not just the Jews, and that he wouldn't be a part of it unless he was personally born again. This would have been a revolutionary concept, that the kingdom was personal, not national or ethnic, and its entrance requirements are repentance and spiritual rebirth. Jesus was explaining the importance of spiritual rebirth, saying that people don't enter this kingdom by living better lives or being better people. Jesus didn't come merely to show us how to live better lives or challenge us to be better. He came to offer us salvation that leads to eternal life. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and no sinner is beyond his saving power. The Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. Later, Nicodemus would come to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, as further in John's Gospel, in chapter 7, he is named, speaking boldly in the defence of Jesus. And that was taking a huge risk for a Pharisee. A Pharisee supporting this blasphemous teacher from Nazareth? But he recognised who he was and that God had sent him, not just to save the Jews in Israel, but Gentiles too, indeed, the whole world. Jesus explains to Nicodemus that to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born of the Spirit. Nicodemus was beginning to recognise who Jesus was and his purpose in coming to be with us. That recognition of Jesus and what he has done for anyone who has not experienced it is very difficult to explain but I'll try and give you a kind of comparison if you like. I recall a number of years ago I was on holiday in Sorrento with some friends uh, and the rest of the family we were, uh, we were going, or they were going snorkelling I, I didn't want to do that I really didn't want to do that I didn't fancy sticking my head underwater and breathing through a tube, no thanks just didn't want to do it but they all said, you're missing out you, you've got to do this, it's amazing So eventually, I was persuaded to have a go. And boy, was I glad I did. To see the number of fish, to see their bright colours, none of which I could see just standing, looking down on the surface of the water, it was amazing. My eyes had been opened. A revelation. I had no idea what I was missing. It's a bit like being with somebody and they say, look, look at that over there. Look at that. It's incredible. And you go, what, what, what? And you can't see it. You can't see it until they point out, until they directly point you to look in the right place. Then, wow, the revelation of seeing what they're seeing. Whatever it is. 
the marvellous revelation of recognising the purpose of Jesus' life and death. People's experience vary greatly. To some, it's like a light that has been switched on, a sudden revelation. They immediately know a difference. To others, it's much more gradual, a bit like a dimmer switch, if you like, where they slowly become aware rather than a sudden revelation. But either way, God reveals himself to you. What matters is not so much the experience, but the fact that when we come before God genuinely seeking repentance for our sin, it is then that we receive Christ and become a child of God. It's the start of a new relationship. Faith is a relationship and not just following someone or something. To some, though, becoming a Christian means to give up things and to be boring, to stop having fun. God will make me do all sorts of tedious religious things. What most people seem to fail to realise is that Christianity is about a relationship with God, a God who loves us and wants the very best for us. Author of the Narnia stories, C.S. Lewis, put it rather nicely in the title of a book he wrote about his own Christian experience. He entitled it, Surprised by Joy. Becoming a Christian is the start of a new life. As Paul put it in Corinthians 2, he is a new being. The old has gone, the new has come. So what is our response uh, to God's love for us in sacrificing his son? Surely it should be one of love for him. So how do we show our love for him? Quite simply, by the way we live. What should we then do and what kind of people should we be? Well, we are called to be different from the world around us. Paul says in the 12th chapter of Romans, do not conform yourselves to the standards of this world. This isn't easy. There is a pressure to conform, to be like everybody else. Sometimes it's very hard to be different. It's far too easy to follow the crowd as this story, I think, beautifully illustrates. A young police officer was taking his final exam at Hendon Police College in North London. Here is one of the questions. You're on patrol in outer London when an explosion occurs in a gas main in a nearby street. On investigation, you find that a large hole has been blown in the footpath and there is an overturned van lying nearby. Inside the van, there is a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. You recognise the woman as the wife of your divisional inspector who is currently away in the USA. A passing motorist stops to offer you assistance and you realise that he is a man wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly a man runs out of the house nearby, shouting that his wife is expecting a baby and that the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. Another man is crying for help, having been blown into an adjacent canal by the force of the explosion, and he can't swim. Bearing in mind the provision of the Mental Health Act, describe in a few, year, a few words what actions you would take. Yeah, where do you begin with that? The officer thought for a moment, picked up his pen and wrote, I would take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. Well, we can all empathise with that answer, can't we? As a Christian, it's often easier to take off our Christian uniform and mingle with the crowd. But just like wearing a police uniform comes with responsibilities, 
Similarly, when we come, become a Christian, we have a responsibility to God. Well, one could argue in a lot less stressful situations than the ones I just described that, well, given the circumstances, we did our best. Did we? Did we really? Or if we're really honest, are we just lying even to ourselves? Now, you'll be glad to know I've never attended the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, but I've seen many of them on films and TV. And whenever, they, uh, whenever a character goes into an AA meeting, they always sit in a circle, and one of the characters will say, for example, my name is Bob and I'm an alcoholic. And all the others clap. They all clap. They're applauding the recognition that this person has a problem and has recognised it. Well, I have a confession, or even a confession, to make you to this morning. My name is Robert, and I'm a chocoholic. <laughs> More seriously, my name is Robert. <laughs> the applause is after this bit. My name is Robert, and I am a sinner. We're all here, hopefully, because we all recognise that we are sinners. And if we don't, then it's about time we did, because until we recognise that... God cannot help us. It starts with our repentance. What is sin, then? It's simply disobedience to God. When we recognise our disobedience, we can then come before God in sincerity. Interestingly, the Greek word for sincere means without hypocrisy, or literally without play-acting, or without a mask. Often relationships in the world are quite superficial, we all sometimes put up fronts to protect, our side, uh, protect ourselves. If people are doing this, then two fronts or masks meet together. The real people never meet. This is the opposite of sincere love. Sincere love means taking off those masks, daring to reveal who we really are. When we know that God loves us, we are free to take off those masks that we sometimes hide behind then we can enjoy the excitement or spiritual fervour which comes from our relationship with God. Of course, there will be a cost to doing this, and it may involve some sacrifice. We have to be prepared to go God's way and not ours. We have to be, be, we have to be prepared to give up anything in our lives which we know is wrong and to put things right. And we need to be willing to fly the flag in a world that may be hostile to the Christian faith. In many parts of this world, being a Christian involves physical persecution. We, in the free world, are privileged to live in a society where Christians are not persecuted. The criticism and mocking that we may receive are hardly worth mentioning compared to the suffering of the early church and the persecuted church today. Nevertheless, our faith may involve making some sacrifices. So why should we do it? Why should we bother? Because God loves us and wants the very best for our lives. He wants us to entrust our lives to him so that we can know the will of God. And his will for us is good. But we are called to remain distinctive, to retain our Christian identity wherever we are and whatever the circumstances. We are not just Christians on a Sunday, but all day and every day. Christians are not called to fit in with their background like a chameleon. 
but to be different. Being different doesn't mean being odd. We can be normal. Indeed, a relationship with God through Jesus should make us more like him. The more like Jesus we become, the more, in that sense, normal we become. Then we become more fully human. When we follow Christ, we are then set free. Free to shed the habits that bring us and others down. We should be encouragers, constantly looking to build others up out of our love for them, rather than being backbiters. Instead of grumbling and complaining, we should be full of thankfulness and joy. We should be demonstrating the blessing of keeping God's standards. So how do we do this? Well, Pauline's letter in Romans chapter 12 says that we are to be transformed. In other words, we are to be like a chrysalis which changes into a beautiful butterfly. We need to change. Many are fearful of change in their life. It reminds me of the story of two caterpillars sitting on a leaf. They see this butterfly passing by. One turns to the other and says, you won't catch me going up in one of those. When people fear change, what they fail to understand is that we can never do a better job than God. In trying to do it alone or our way, we are much more likely to end up making an awful mess of things. However, some people insist on running their own lives. They don't want help and they will not trust God. And more often than not, it will all end in tears. But God gives us a second chance. If we will trust God with our lives, then he will show us what his will is. The little sacrifices he may ask us to make are nothing when we compare them with the sacrifice that God has made for us. If Christ is the Son of God and he died for me, surely there is nothing too hard that I can do for him. If that seems daunting, then Psalm 110-1 reminds us we are protected by the creator of everything. A reminder of those last two verses that we said together. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. What a promise. Earlier I talked about an AA meeting, where the whole whole point of an AA meeting, or any kind of group therapy, is that by meeting with others that have the same problems as you, you can share and empathise together and feel the support from each other who know exactly how you feel. In that sense, a church is no different. We've all had it said, though, haven't we? You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, that's obviously true. But it's a bit like belonging to a club when you're the only member. What's the point? We learn and grow from others. God recognises our need to share and grow from each other's experiences. If you like... We're all involved in a glorified AA meeting. Only the freedom we seek is with the Spirit, not from it. And it's a very different kind of Spirit. It's God's Holy Spirit. We are called as Christians to live in harmony with one another and to be generous, hospitable, forgiving, and to live in peace with one another. It's a glorious picture of the Christian family into which God calls us, where we can experience an atmosphere of love, joy, and patience, and so on. What do you mean church isn't really like that? Well, what you have to remember is that church is full of human beings, and we're all flawed. 
But with God's help, we'll all get there. To acknowledge Jesus as Saviour means we have to stand up and be counted. Maybe to make sacrifices, but God gives us help in the form of the Holy Spirit. In fellowship, we are also able to share with others as part of the universal body of Christ. We shouldn't try to do it alone. We're a family where we help and support each other, but also where we can experience real peace and joy with one another. A joy that comes from having a relationship with the creator of the universe. And what could be better than that? Amen. So we come to our last song. Mighty to save. Saviour. Mighty to save. Please stand to sing if you're able.